0: my name's clover and we need to talk about eco-anxiety some of you may be wondering what eco-anxiety even is while others may be struggling with it right now this podcast is for both of you those curious listeners who want to understand the impacts of climate change on our mental health, this podcast is your crash course. Each week on the show, we'll be exploring a different face of the climate crisis, from the food we eat to our relationship with media, our addiction to fossil fuels, and everything in between. I'll be speaking to leading experts and global companies about challenges and solutions. You'll also hear from young people around the world who feel eco-anxious and hear from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, about how to navigate some of these feelings. And for those of you who feel eco-anxious right now, I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. And far from being a sign of weakness, your eco-anxiety is totally normal. In fact, it's a sign of your empathy, proof that you are awake to the issues. I believe that talking about our eco-anxiety is the first step to turning it into agency, community, and vision. So let's talk about eco-anxiety. On the previous episode, we faced the climate crisis head on with energy and fossil fuels featuring Anisa of Oil Change International and Kate of Ovo Energy. We heard from our resident psychotherapist Caroline about breaking our addiction to fossil fuels as well as the importance of holding tension when society is both making progress while also clutching onto ancient history. If you haven't already, be sure to check it out. Today's episode is about media. I've grown up in a time where tweets can end careers, Facebook can win or lose elections, and a 15-second dance routine on TikTok can become a global craze. And if we're not talking about it, we are on it. Sometimes debating the influence of social media wait for it, on social media. Thinking about the media can feel like being in a hall of mirrors, but what we see reflected back at us is often distorted, unreal, nauseating, and can even fan the flames of anxiety, especially in the context of the climate crisis. There is an ongoing debate within activist communities about how we use media to talk about the climate crisis. Does it need to be front and center all the time? If so, whose stories are we telling and who's telling those stories. There's now a term, climate doom porn, which refers to the constant onslaught of depressing climate news. I've been guilty of only engaging with and resharing this kind of content. It can kind of feel addictive, but then unfollowing accounts that do the same because it all becomes a bit too much. How do we platform the climate science without overwhelming people? To help me answer some of these questions, later I'll be speaking to Stephen Dunbar Johnson, President International of the New York Times, about the role of legacy media to drive climate action. But first, I wanted to learn more from a friend who is a social media pioneer. With over 7 million followers across his platforms, he made his name on YouTube, but is now a hugely influential activist and communicator. He has started his own TV miniseries on climate, protested in the streets, and even been arrested for his activism. I reached out to my friend Jack Harris. Jack,
1: Over to you. My name is Jack Harries. I'm 27 years old. I guess I think of myself as a documentary filmmaker and more broadly a communicator. What drew you to
0: telling stories around climate and environment?
1: I started making films when I was 18. During that time, I sort of just dreamt of starting a YouTube channel. And this was like a totally different time back in 2011. No one made money making YouTube videos. There was no such thing as a YouTuber. Somewhere along that journey, about four years in, I had a chance to go to Greenland with the WWF to go and make a film glacial retreat, And I met a man called Alan Hubbard, who's a glaciologist who'd been studying the ice sheet for 10 years. And honestly, it was him and the look of fear in his face when he talked about what was happening to the Greenland ice sheet that started to wake something up inside of me. It started to dawn on me how big this issue was. That coupled with the fact that that night we camped there, we were kept awake by the sound of huge pieces of ice carving off the front of the glacier. I mean, physically shaking us awake. And there's nothing more visceral than that feeling, than that sound, to wake you up to the fact that our planet is changing in a really... Way so I suppose at some point when you learn about this issue, you ask yourself, well, what can I do? You know, how can I play a role? For me, it came to well, communicating. You know, that's all I know how to do.
0: When you look at the major narratives around climate, when you look at the dominant kind of storytelling. Where is that climate conversation working and where is it broken?
1: If we look at the climate story that's been told over the last sort of 30, 40 years, very often it's focused on doom and gloom and denial. You know, it was only a few years ago that the BBC mandated that they would stop bringing on a denialist every time a scientist talks about climate change. So we hear a lot about melting glaciers and about burning rainforests. But I think for a long time, we failed to communicate the human impact of of that. And I think that's a huge issue because as humans, we're moved by human stories. And so if you hear a rainforest is burning, it's upsetting, but it doesn't necessarily move you to act. Whereas if you say that in 20, 30 years, there's going to be food shortages and crops are going to fail en masse, suddenly that animal instinct within us wakes up. Oh, this is threatening to, to my livelihood and, and many millions of others. And I think in a way, climate change is the story we failed to tell. You know, we talk a lot about saving the planet. I just find this so confusing. The planet's going to be fine. You know, what's under threat is people and, and and all the sort of life that live on this planet. So I think that's a failure. I think mainstream media have a huge role to play in stepping up around the communication for this issue. And we've seen it change. Like, we have to give credit. The last two years, The Guardian have massively refocused on the environment. It's become a way bigger section on their website. And you can see that they're championing the environmental journalist's in their organisation. Same as the New York Times too, but I think they got stuck on this sort of narrative of sounding the alarm. In around 2018, we sort of started to sound the alarm and I think that was needed. We had to sort of wake people up, to shock people and it happened and people took to the streets, millions and millions around the world. Now they have a responsibility to start pointing people towards the exits and we're not seeing that happen and I think if you just continue to sort of cry the doomsday message then people are just going to be overwhelmed and they're going to turn off so I think that organizations like the New York Times and the Guardian have a huge responsibility to start talking more about where we're going to start championing ideas like the Green New Deal for example and at the moment I feel like I see that predominantly on social media that's what I love about Instagram accounts like Future Earth or Atmos to shout out a few they are envisioning ideas of where we should move towards and it's also participatory you know the audience are sort of making suggestions and that feels much more exciting than what you see in in the mainstream media and so my aim as a storyteller is to try and communicate uh, a positive message i feel passionate that it's only then that people will be moved to take action that they'll understand the severity of the issue we face
0: how do you ensure that in that climate storytelling we're not then causing people to just fall into a pit of despair and kind of dystopian envisioning about the future that we're inheriting
1: when you learn about climate change, it can be incredibly overwhelming and ultimately paralyzing. It can be hard to know what, you can do as an individual. And so I think people have been put off taking that action and it's a very overwhelming and intimidating space to come into. We sort of get stuck between flight or fright and we sort of just get completely paralyzed. The trick is to turn that anxiety into action, You know, to move past that fear. For me, I had years of feeling completely overwhelmed and the only way I was able to come through that was by starting to take action. And that in a way is sort of liberating. It makes you realize that you are in control I think the thing that makes climate anxiety worse, firstly, it's natural. It would be strange if you didn't, if that news didn't make you feel anxious. And that's something people won't tell you. But second, I think the thing that makes it worse is the idea that you're the only one experiencing this. It's very alienating if you go on that journey and then you go and meet some friends and you say, "You are you reading this news? You feel like you're the only one seeing this stuff. It's so crazy. And it can be very isolating and that makes it feel a whole lot worse. And so for me, part of the process coming through it was finding a community of people who shared that grief, who shared that fear and that anxiety. And there was something really comforting in hearing other people talk about the reality of the situation.
0: What is your experience of social media, like the good, the bad, and the ugly? What do you see as working? And also, I'd love to hear more about what you're trying to achieve through Earthrise.
1: Oh, right. social media has changed a lot in the last year, right? I've been on Instagram eight nine years, maybe. And I feel like in the last year, it is completely transformed. Um, And a lot of this happened around the brutal murder of George Floyd. We saw Instagram become a space for activism and become a space to educate one another. It's almost felt like our generation sort of woke up to this tool that we have at our fingertips that was largely making a lot of us feel bad and and still does to a degree, but also has this potential for mass organization and education. And that's really what this moment requires of us we need to educate and to upskill millions of people in order to tackle this huge impending crisis that is as simple as it is is it perfect absolutely not does it have a long way to go yes But I've been really excited by what we've seen on Instagram and other platforms like TikTok and now Clubhouse over the last year. And about a year ago, we came up with this idea of creating Earthrise, and the idea was, you know, what sort of space do we wish we had when we were learning about this issue? And that's a space that didn't make you feel stupid for not knowing, a space that didn't make you feel bad for being a hypocrite, and a space where you could talk to other people about what you were experiencing because that, as we discussed earlier, helps massively with the anxiety that's involved. And so this the aim of Earthrise, really, is to sort of guide people on that journey and to land them fair and square in that place of acceptance with the hope that it will activate more people to, to take action.
0: Whose voices do you see missing from the climate
1: conversation? If you look at the environmental movement over the last 30 years, it has been predominantly white. And I think we see that a lot in what you refer to as legacy media. And we know that the terrible irony of climate change is that those who are most affected are those who have done the least to cause it. People living in the global South, people who are both the most vulnerable but also the least able to adapt to the changes that are in the pipeline. And I think, Perhaps that's why we haven't told that story, because those are the people that are most affected. And I think in the global north, I'm from the UK, which created the industrial revolution in, in the first place. We have a responsibility to lift up those stories of people who are on the front lines. And one of the things that excites me in general about social media, but particularly the environmental space is, is massively democratizing and it's diversifying this space in a huge way. And ultimately, that's what we need. Climate change is an intersectional issue. You can't isolate it. You can't just look at, as we have done for the last 30 years, just the environmental aspect. We have to look at how systemic racism is a part of climate change. We have to look at how gender is a part of climate change. Social inequality will be massively exacerbated by climate change. Every social issue we can think about sort of sits under the umbrella of climate change and will be exacerbated by this issue in the future. So we need to bring all of those conversations into this sort of big mega conversation around the climate crisis.
0: I'd love to know, Jack, how you continue to show up to do the amazing work that you do every single day with that knowledge and acceptance that we might fail, we might not save the species that we want to we might still have a billion climate refugees by 2050 how do you reconcile all of that and hold it together without falling to pieces
1: it's a really good question i think when you first come to this issue it's really easy to focus on the immediate sort of doomsday scenario and there's an acceptance that has to happen which is that we're not going to stop climate change there is no winning or no beating it because once you have that acceptance you start to ask well what comes next and I find a huge amount of purpose in reimagining what the world could look like, and using this as a fundamental opportunity to rewrite the wrongs of which there are so many within our society. You start to realize that there is another world after this, and it looks very different to the one we live in now. And it's only going to come about if we start to think about what it looks like, and we start to dream it up and to imagine it. It requires creativity. It requires imagination. And you know, there is no winning or losing. Either we do nothing, and we're heading for climate destruction, and that's that's hardly worth thinking about. Or we make this transition and it's gonna be painful. It's gonna require an unimaginable scale of transformation. But I know which one that I would choose. Mary Hegler, who's one of my favorite writers in this space, she has said a quote and I'll absolutely murder it, but she said something like, you can either feel completely overwhelmed by the reality of the situation or fall in love with the solutions. I love that idea. And I feel as though over the last few years, I've sort of started to fall in love with the creativity that is required to be able to tackle this huge and overwhelmingly daunting issue.
0: I learned so much chatting to Jack. Something I really related to was how he navigates those feelings of overwhelm, accepting what we have already lost to the climate crisis, including its immediate doomsday impacts in order to ask what comes next. I wanted to learn if there were others like Jack and me struggling to reconcile those feelings of eco-anxiety while continuing to be on the pulse of the climate crisis. So I put out another call to young people around the world. Here's what they had to say.
2: My name is Dan. I'm currently living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, United States, and I'm 21 years old. Climate change has made me more anxious, more concerned, and overall, I have a greater sense of doom and despair for the future of the world and the people around me. My ego anxiety has become more heightened, and my sense of concern of the state of the world has significantly increased. I really cope with this by becoming more connected with the people around me, as well as how I connect with the media, especially social media. This relationship is also both a love-hate relationship where I have become inspired, but also felt a sense of dread. And this relationship has made me see media as both a tool that we can use to help and bring about change, but also a weapon that we should fear and be concerned about. Because the media can be used in the hands of corporations and powerful people who can use it as a tool to improve themselves for their profit or as a PR tool for greenwashing.
1: Asha from the Philippines, the medium of art, culture, and telling stories have become a uniting force for all of humanity. This is why we know when we are facing something as pressing, like an ecological breakdown, often too heavy to hold on our own, media allows us to break the stigma of feeling inferior, inadequate, or even alone, and its impact is opening our eyes to unique, inclusive solutions. Media is a tool, and our job is to craft good. Thus, the value of inclusivity is necessary and diversity is vital. Understanding things from different perspectives is needed such as indigenous voices, women's voices and young people's voices because then if we're able to understand different perspectives, different stories from other people we're able to come to our senses to understand how we too can play a part in the solution.
3: My name is Esme and I'm speaking from Guildford which is in the UK and I'm 25 years old. I am a green runner on a tv series so that basically means that i'm trying to make the tv production as green as possible i find that every day is one big convincing story that i have to tell them and it all boils down to money for example finding certified paper that comes from sustainable forests and trying to get that the same price paper that they already have was one of my challenges this week And as long as I got it the same price or cheaper, then they were happy with that. But anything above, they were like, "Uh uh-uh. Which is fair enough, I can understand that. It's a project, so they have a budget. But it's just made me feel like, basically acting as if it's not real, climate change. I just feel like I'm playing the field a lot and trying to speak my truth and stick to my morals, but at the same time, try and act like oh, it's chilled, you know, we can get through this. I'll delete what I just said in that email about climate crisis. And I actually wrote Planet Problems instead um, because I was worried about the reaction that I was going to receive. Yeah, it's such a yo-yo, to be honest. I will have lovely conversations with people that are totally on my side, and then someone will just come and poop on my head the next.
4: My name is Minko van der Weijden. I'm from the Netherlands, but I live in London and I'm 24 years old. You're trying to somewhat nudge people around you, but you also don't want to be that heavy, unpleasant person to be around with. You don't want to lecture other people on what they should do. But you also feel a certain moral responsibility of sharing your thoughts and sharing what is important to you and what is hopefully important to others as well. I think that's kind of the core of eco-anxiety for me personally. That brings me to media, which is my background. I started studying film production in the Netherlands. And sometimes we were working on jobs that just didn't reflect my own values. And just constantly felt like what I was learning is just so unrelevant. So I felt kind of demotivated and I felt like what I was doing just didn't really matter. I think that all changed when I found a Platonic my latest production company. What we try to do is bring these stories about climate change to the larger audiences. And I think this has been my way of coping with climate change because now I feel like I'm actively doing something.
0: We've just heard from young people around the world sharing their open and honest feelings. I really resonated with what Dan said about being conflicted about the role of media as both a tool for change and as a potential weapon to be wary of. I can also relate to Esme's experience of censoring herself on climate so as to not rock the boat. I want to understand how we can continue to learn about the climate crisis and talk about it without feeling completely overwhelmed. So I've reached out to my friend Caroline to share her wisdom. Caroline is a psychotherapist from the University of Bath who has spent years researching children and young people's relationships with nature, as well as exploring their feelings about the climate and ecological crisis. Looking at the media landscape at large, how do we need to change the climate story that we are telling?
5: My approach is that we empower people by telling them the truth and that we do that by not shying away from the hard truth and hard facts and that we need to go down into the story and go to the doom and gloom in order to come through that, to grieve what we've done and then find what I argue is sustainable activism sustainable empowerment because otherwise, without that grief and rage and despair and frustration and failure, we don't get resilient, sustainable activism. Genuine empowerment comes from, I've messed up, I'm broken, I'm stuck, I'm failing, I don't know what to do now. At that moment of despair, that's when you get the transformational change and that's when you get that resilient empowered action for the future. And then you get back up again and you have to repeat that cycle quite a few times, but you've got to have that hopelessness as part of it. So for me, it's about reframing hopelessness as an essential part of developing sustainable empowered action. We need emotional wisdom as well as intellectual wisdom. So we need the rational intellect and we need the feelings and they've got to come together because otherwise the split into the doom and gloom versus optimism and positive thinking, what we need is both and you stand in the middle which is this kind of reality which holds both in view. Both working together is essential because it's already too late to save every part of the planet. It's already too late for the Maldives, for Bangladesh. That doom and gloom stuff is real. But so is the positive thinking. So is the positive innovation. That's real too. So you can't split those two. You've got to find a way to bring those opposites together and hold the tension of the two and not let them split apart. I often introduce myself as the 13th fairy out of Sleeping Beauty. You know, all of the fairy godmothers flew in and gave her all of these fabulous gifts. You'll have amazing hair and everyone will fall in love with you. And oh, a narcissistic nightmare. The 13th fairy comes in and goes, no, you're all going to die. And then the 12th that had been missed out comes back and goes, no, you're going to go to sleep. You're not going to die. That 13th fairy saved that child from narcissistic hell. She did her a huge favor we've got to wake people up by giving them the honor of telling them the truth and being real about that and supporting them and giving them the emotional support to navigate it but do not move away from the doom and gloom stuff it's the doom and gloom narrative that will save us working with the positive thinking and the solutions
0: I really liked how Caroline captured the importance of traveling into our feelings while also learning the stats and facts. We need to be real with people, of course we do, but we also need to provide the emotional support to make sense of this situation. When speaking with Jack, he mentioned how platforms like the BBC had given rise to climate misinformation, while outlets like the New York Times are largely stuck sounding the alarm. So I wanted to go direct to the source to understand what it will take to wake. People up to the crisis without shutting them down. I couldn't think of a better person than Stephen, President International of the New York Times. Here he is.
6: My name is Stephen Dunbar-Johnson, and my title is President International for the New York Times Company.
0: I would love to kick us off with a question around language. Will the New York Times take a more firm stance on communicating the reality of the crisis clearly with readers? And building on that, how, from your view, Stephen, do we strike a balance between telling the facts and communicating the urgency without simply adding gas to dystopian thinking?
6: I think our position on this is, you know, whether we call it a crisis or an emergency, a disaster, whatever words we use, our role as a media organisation is to cover the story and to cover it with great vigour and consistency and professionalism and to try and get to the truth around all of these stories. So whether we call it an emergency, a crisis or a disaster, whatever we may call it, it doesn't actually matter after a while because the word emergency becomes part of the wallpaper. People become numb to that. Our role is to write about this with consistency and in great depth and make sure that we're giving it the priority it deserves in terms of the quantity of coverage we're giving it, given the extent of the emergency. That's our position. Let's not get hung up about the words because those will become wallpaper. Let's get serious about our journalistic intent in covering this massive existential story that is the biggest story of our times. And the great challenge, I think, is it's quite easy to do the dystopia on climate change because there's a lot out there. it's less easy perhaps to do some of the other stuff which is right about the solutions aspects and all of the really interesting things that are happening all over the world within the business community, within the science community, tech community and pathways that are emerging for us potentially to get out of this crisis or if not to get entirely out of it to adapt to it and partially get out of it. So there's a lot of work I think we need to continue to do in terms of helping point readers to those stories as well as the stuff that often hits the home screen and front pages which tends to be you know that people in the Pacific Northwest are boiling or as it happened overnight a whole town gets engulfed in flames in British Columbia for crying out loud that's going to hit the front pages understandably but how do we also show people all of the work we're doing in the other areas around the solutions side and we're thinking quite a lot about how we do that
0: What do you see as the role of today's youth in addressing our climate crisis and how at the New York Times do you ensure that you are platforming The emerging generation of climate leaders, and in fact, enabling those young people to walk the corridors of power as we make decisions that are ultimately going to govern and determine the future we're inheriting.
6: We think our staff and everything we do should be reflective of society writ large in its complexity. And I think many of us, when we're thinking about DEI, we're thinking about including in terms of ethnicity, gender, we're thinking about proper representation from the global south, and all these things, but not necessarily thinking about young voices and particularly as it relates to the climate crisis and their future. I'm a middle-aged white guy and I'm deeply concerned about the climate crisis but I'll be dead when a lot of this is hitting you won't be. And so we need to give you young people, Clover and you're in that bracket, uh, more voice. So to give you an example of how we're thinking about this is we've got a very significant project for COP in Glasgow. The New York Times is going to be taking a very significant space close to the COP venue in which we're going to be programming 10 days of conversations and live journalism around climate solutions so we're going to be talking about the urgency of the crisis but also really focusing on how we can scale solutions bringing together policymakers business leaders technologists civil society writ large together really a kind of a festival of ideas but really focus on scaling now the point about young people is that we've been very intentional as we're thinking about the programming in fact you've been part of this to think about how how we can give young people agency in the programming so that the programming speaks to them and it's not just a bunch of middle-aged people who are coming up with the programming and we want to give agency to, to make sure that, the pro- as I said, the programming speaks to this younger generation but also give them a platform throughout the 10 days so that they are on stage, they can contribute their ideas, their thoughts and also hold the power to account and ask power questions on stage. So I think that's an example of what we're trying to do. Beyond that, I think it's very important that in our news. Room in our reporting, we're looking to give young people as much of a chance and voice as possible, particularly around this subject.
0: Is eco anxiety something you can relate to? If yes, how have you navigated those feelings about the climate crisis?
6: I relate to it very much. I mean, this is a subject that I've just got more and more interested in for the last 15, 20 years. And I started an event when I was publisher of the International Herald Tribune, which was the predecessor of what is now the International Edition of the New York Times, around renewable energy. I called it a clean energy forum and started that 15 years ago, maybe more. And back then, everybody thought I was a complete lunatic, but I just felt that this was going to be an issue that was just going to grow. But my anxiety has grown with it as I've learned more about the subject. So I found that as I've dug into it more and become more educated about where we're going, I've become <laughs> deeply anxious and grayer than I already am by the challenge that confronts all of us. And how I deal with it, though, is I'm fortunate enough to work for a fantastic organization. I can get involved in trying to do something about it, and the New York Times, we now have a dedicated climate team. We have 13, 14 journalists who are, all they do is think about climate. they sitting in the heart of our newsroom, and that's just the tip of the spear. We have incredible graphic journalism going on. A lot of it focused on how do we get this story across in a way that really works across digital platforms. We have unbelievable photographic team who a lot of their work is now focused on the climate crisis. Increasingly, our reporters around the world are being assigned climate stories. That's what I do. I want to. Try and find ways where we as an organization can help focus on this subject and bring it to people's attention last thing i will say is i am feeling a bit more optimistic about this than i was a couple of years ago because i've seen a real shift in businesses around this where businesses are thinking of it as an opportunity as opposed to a thing that they need to do before the lockdown i was in india in hyderabad and i met with a ceo of an indian renewable energy company and I i won't name who they are but what was interesting about this meeting was i got the sense that this chap really didn't care that that much about the environment. He was very, very attentive to his bottom line, and he was having a great time. He was doing very well. Their order book was bursting. And why? Because it makes economic sense to supply solar power. To, to This guy was talking about a contract he felt he was going to win in, to supply Delhi with solar power and tackle intermittency through hydro, which they would use. I won't go into the details, but the point is, is that this chap was genuinely building a very good business by solving issues. And I think that the movement towards ESG can be criticized for lack of substance and maybe greenwashing. But the reality is that we've got multinational companies setting themselves very bold targets. They've got to set out clearly how they're going to achieve those targets, but they've gone public with big, hairy, audacious goals, and they're going to have to do something to meet those goals. So I'm actually feeling a little bit more optimistic than I was a couple of years ago.
0: my decade of climate activism, I've realized that climate scientists are brilliant and brainy, but by no means the best communicators, particularly when broadcasting to us irrational humans and when up against the shady tactics of the fossil fuel industry, which we uncovered in last week's episode with Anissa. We humans are wired for fight or flight, not this is an enormous yet largely long-term complex threat, which requires our immediate As Jack and Steven mentioned, the knee-jerk response to this has been to swing in the opposite direction with a message of doomsday and dystopia that shuts us down. As we heard from young voices around the world, eco-anxiety is inevitable as you learn more and more about the climate crisis. We can't escape the eco-anxiety, but also we shouldn't try to. Caroline told us that traveling into those difficult feelings is critical. In fact, those feelings are what wake us up and catalyze us to act, but we can't stop there. Once we confront those feelings head on, we must then create space for imagination, vision, and creativity, the foundations for solutions. This is where I see young people at a unique advantage. We haven't been around long enough to let society clip the wings of our imaginations. We haven't been conditioned to the status quo, which we know is now leading us toward climate collapse. And so it's just that little bit easier for us to imagine how we might do things differently. As Jack said, we have the opportunity to rewrite so many of the world's wrongs. There is another world after this, which looks very different from the one we have now. That world is ours to create. Telling that story might be harder, but it's essential. So let's get to work. Next week on the show, we will be discussing plastic. We have amazing conversations lined up. You'll hear from Malati Weissen, young activist, founder of Bye Bye Plastic Bags and Youthopia. You'll also hear from Ali Manfredi, executive vice president of Dove. And as per usual, you'll be hearing from Young Voices, our resident psychotherapist, and me, your host, Clover Hogan. How did today's episode make you feel? Let us know by heading over to Force of Nature's Instagram at forceofnature.xyz and dropping us a comment or DM. We've also partnered with Jack's organization, Earthrise Studio, to bring you some pretty epic content on the gram. Be sure to head over there and join the conversation. We also have a save the date. On October 9th, we're hosting an epic panel session featuring change makers from the podcast. Go to forceofnature.xyz to get your ticket as spaces are limited. As a reminder, if you are struggling with your mental health in the face of the climate crisis or you're feeling particularly overwhelmed by your eco-anxiety you can find a whole host of resources to support you at forceofnature.xyz forward slash podcast the force of nature podcast is brought to you by force of nature and the awesome production team at one fine play